Hello and welcome to the Sleep Like a Baby podcast. I'm your host Hannah and I'm an infant sleep consultant as well as a mum living and working in South East London. If you want to know what on earth is going on with your little one at night time or why nobody told you how, when and where your baby naps might just take over your life, you are in the right place. This is a podcast all about normal infant sleep and the alternatives to sleep training and strict routines. I run a sleep consultancy business called Little Nest that is all about supporting parents in following their own nurturing instincts and exploring these alternatives to sleep training. So if you don't want to cry it out, but waiting it out isn't really an option either, welcome to the middle ground. And in this week's episode, I am thrilled to announce my guest, Carmel Gentle. And yes, I checked, Gentle is actually her real name. Nominative determinism should be a prerequisite for all podcast guests, I think, maybe moving forward. Carmel is a registered midwife and an infant feeding specialist. And I followed her on Instagram for some time now and love her holistic and responsive approach to all things birth, parenting and feeding. And Carmel is also an expert in tongue ties, which is what we are talking about today. So I have a personal interest in tongue ties because my own baby had one and it caused absolute havoc with our feeding and sleeping journey. And so I've since gone on to study breastfeeding and tongue function so that I can not only help spot these issues for my clients because it's very widespread, but also it's been very um, healing for me to also understand now what was going on for me and my baby at that very difficult time. So Carmel is a mother of two herself. She's a fellow South Londoner and she's worked as a midwife since 2006. She also has a master's in public health and is a qualified international board certified lactation consultant, also known as an IBCLC. So if you would like to have your little one checked over for a tongue tie and you're in the UK, the best thing to do is to visit the Association of Tongue Tie Practitioners website where you can find accredited professionals who are properly trained in the assessment and treatment of oral ties. So you can also find Carmel on this website and I've linked to her website and her Instagram in the show notes of this episode too in case you would like to work with her or find out some more information about what she's doing. So tongue ties don't just impact feeding, they can influence breathing, sleep, language and physical development, but perhaps equally important, I just want to flag that they can also have a really big impact on parents and their confidence and well-being. So if feeding is stressful, and that might be breastfeeding or bottle feeding, you can it can really, really affect the whole family. It can be a knock to your self-esteem and a source of just regular daily stress. But thankfully, people like Carmel exist. And she is on a mission to raise awareness about tongue ties and is actually now even training even more practitioners herself. She runs a 12-week certified tongue tie assessor program also. So I know that in other parts of the world as well that babies are also treated for lip ties as well as tongue ties. However, in the UK, this isn't general practice. Um, The evidence for lip ties is still pretty inconclusive. So um, the Association of Tongue Tie Practitioners based in the UK, which is the kind of regulatory body, um, has a statement on their website that you can read. And again, I'll, I'll link to that. So I'm afraid we don't really go into that subject very much in our chat today, simply because there is so much to cover when we're talking about oral function and mouths and breathing and feeding and all of these things. Um, 
So I will just say, though, that if your little one does have a restricted frenulum, a.k.a. a tongue tie, then the odds are they will also very likely have a lip tie and or a high palate as well, which can also impact things like reflux. So in the coming weeks, I'm going to do a whole other episode on reflux and feeding um, where we'll explore all of that stuff in more detail. But for now, here's my chat with Carmel Gentle about how tongue function impacts little ones and their caregivers too. So I'm aware that this is a infant sleep podcast and I'm not a feeding specialist but feeding and sleep are so intertwined especially for younger babies that it's really important I think to talk about these things and in fact I often don't really work with babies under kind of six months of age because I find that newborns and and little babies don't really have sleep problems they have normally feeding or digestive problems or other medical conditions so I think it's really important we all have more information about the things that might be affecting sleep other than the kind of routines or self-settling or these other things that people try to tell us are more important. And I find as well that in the UK, when a family is expecting a child, we're told a lot about the importance of breastfeeding. Um, But then when the baby arrives, often there just isn't enough support afterwards for a family to continue with that, which was certainly my experience, sadly. And it's a bit of a postcode lottery. So... I found that one of the most common reasons uh, that breastfeeding is hard to establish or perhaps a baby is quite unsettled in the first few months of life is often due to an undiagnosed or missed tongue tie. And so today I've got the wonderful Carmel Gentle on the show to talk about all things tongues. So welcome Carmel, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you Hannah, thanks for having me. So if... um, if someone's listening to this and they've never heard of a tongue tie, could we just start by you explaining exactly what we mean by that term? So everyone would probably recognise underneath their own tongue that there's this band or membrane which connects from the tongue to the floor of the mouth. And when someone is tongue-tied that band is restrictive and so it might be short in its length it might be inelastic it could be quite thick and so when it when it is it can impact the tongue's mobility and so for small babies they it can impact the way that they feed and it's something that they it, it's it's happened before they're born so it happens in utero from around eight to ten weeks gestation when the mouth is forming and the tongue and it's a it's it, it it's a remnant of that tissue which hasn't kind of died off in those early gestational periods so it's not something that it just occurs when they're born it's something that's already happened it's a, it's a hereditary condition so you'll typically see it somewhere in the family if either parent or grandparent um, may have it as well and um, yeah it really can have some impact for some babies on the way that they're able to feed. Yeah so um, I'm 
tongue-tied I think you know I can't really stick my own tongue out very far and yeah. um I've uh, always kind of had lots of like teeth grinding at night yeah. and uh, now that I know a bit more about tongue function and development I can see kind of signs of myself like crooked teeth and jaw issues and things like that that I think um it, yeah so it's really interesting because yeah. there's not much long-term studies around you know how it impacts older children or adults but when I'm when I'm kind of looking at looking after babies and you know seeing the symptoms are showing up and I'm asking the parents about you know if I've recognized it in the parents and I ask them about certain symptoms and it, you know things do show up and it's, it's typically because you're compensating for the way your tongue is so you get used to using your tongue the way it is at some point um along you know in your childhood mm-hmm. um and for some children that might take a bit longer than others so they may have maybe you might hear it often they're described as like fussy eaters or mm-hmm. um they they struggle with maybe certain sounds or or speech and so it, it it can show up in that way but there's just not enough evidence to show that and so it's really hard to say as a baby well you know it's going to possibly impact you later on because we we don't we don't know how that baby will adapt or that child will adapt yes yeah that's a really good point to make it's it's funny so I'm I'm the third of four children and my mum breastfed me but she said that I just fed constantly for a really long time and yeah. that I was just never off the boob but because I think I was her third and she she kind of was quite experienced by that point she didn't really mind too much or she just kind of I don't know just went on it became it just became, got on with it yeah, yeah it became her normal you know that yeah that just was the norm we didn't see it as any Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And she said, I vomited constantly and (laughs) slept (laughs) awfully for like two years and just never stopped uh, breastfeeding. And also, I think for her as well, because this is in the 80s and she didn't know many other people in her kind of circle that were breastfeeding either. Mm. So she just thought, okay, well, this is this is must be normal. And actually, then when I had my son and he was tongue tied and I had lots of problems feeding, it wasn't it you know it wasn't actually that helpful to talk to her because she was very much like well that's just normal and some babies just do that and so you just you know but I was feeding like nine ten hours a day you know like he was just constantly trying yeah. to get get milk and things so it was a bit frustrating that sometimes she would say well that's just what some babies do and and it's true and but it just it wasn't I don't know well, maybe, yeah it, maybe... It, it's it's true to a certain degree that you know some babies will you know I, I think also the message that feed on demand also mm-hmm adds to that because you're well they're demanding it so you keep feeding them but you know are they when I'm looking at that baby who's feeding constantly or feeding on the hour every hour I'm wanting to see are they actually effectively transferring the milk because that would be the reason why they feed for those long periods of time is because actually they're not quite getting it all out easily so they have to stay on longer to get the volume yeah and my son was he was feeding constantly but dropping a centile every week not having Mm. enough wet or dirty nappies and Mm. I I felt it was very difficult I I had I I know a lot of people suspect they have low supply and that can sometimes be not the case but you know or you can doubt yourself but I definitely felt like I wasn't making milk as well and the fact that he wasn't growing and the fact that he wasn't pooing and all of these things also played into it so yeah yeah. Um, so why do you think there isn't more research into tongue ties and 
this area so, so there's the research that kind of shows that it you know it does exist it does have mm-hmm. it can have impact on on breastfeeding and bottle feeding babies um and then it's the longer term research and so it that isn't really quite there yet which mm. um and I think that's just no one's <laughs> taken up on themselves to, to study it um <laughs> and I think it's and then it, it becomes quite focused around the kind of infant feeding and and that's it and even when you know in our training it's you know we thought well that's your scope of practice is infant feeding um but it's very hard to ignore the potential um longer term impacts because I'm I'm speaking to so many parents about it and I see it and I can notice it um you know even before they've opened their mouths I can just see sometimes just from their posture I had a parent the other day who came to the drawer on their tiptoes and um and the kind of the way their head kind of came forward was quite anterior in its posture and and so I can tell just externally how they're compensating um because the the tie the the fascia the, it's it's connective tissue it the fascia that's under the tongue spreads from uh, from the tongue tip right down to the um, spinal column down to your big toe so it's it's that connective tissue is restricted it's got the impact uh, to it's, it could possibly impact you somewhere else in your body because it's all connected it's one. <laughs> That is fascinating to me. Wow. And and so what's interesting as well with my experience is that I went along and saw a cranial osteopath uh, when my son was very little. And this was before I'd actually had any support with the breastfeeding. So I, I think he was literally two weeks old. And we were still just kind of like in the kind of powering through stage of hoping for the best. And the cranial osteopath didn't even look in his mouth or look at the tongue at all but she just said to me oh he's he's probably tongue-tied and I think that's amazing just by the way that she positioned his his feeling and then when I went to see um, a breastfeeding like support worker I said oh maybe there's a tongue-tie and then as I was feeding him she kind of looked at me and said like looked at how he's feeding and saying no I don't don't think so he it all looks good from the outside so that can be a really common experience can't it that people might yes. not people look a baby might look like they're feeding well but without someone like you who's trained to detect the tongue tie yeah could maybe maybe what I'm asking is could you tell us a little bit more about how you can actually diagnose a tongue tie so you can't not everyone firstly not everyone is trained to assess or or even know what tongue tie is or what's you know what's a normal appearing frenulum to one that's restricted and so commonly parents most common thing I hear is actually you know I I asked and I was told there wasn't one and sometimes they're asking several practitioners from whether they're at birthing in hospital, you know, through to the community, midwives, health visitors, GPs, pediatricians, they'll they'll ask so many people and they'll be told probably various different things. Um, and by just looking, and often it's just a cursory glance into the baby's mouth that, you know, you can't tell what that tongue is able to do. Um, and so it's really having a physical oral assessment um, done 
but it's also having it done by somebody who knows what they're looking for. Yeah, so we've got posterior and anterior ties, right? Yeah. So my sister had a baby with an anterior tongue tie. So as soon as she opened her mouth, bam, you could just see it. You know, she could, you, yeah. she could, you could just, it was so visible. And so for her, so when I had them, my son, she would say to me, well, can you see anything? And I'd say, well, no, he's moving his tongue. It looks all right. Because obviously mm-hmm. I wasn't trained <laughs> to yeah. know what a normal tongue looked like. Um, so I think that's really important for people to know is that you, someone might have a peer in, someone might look at your latch and say that's fine. But mm-hmm. yeah, it, until someone can kind of, who's really understands what a tongue tie is and puts their fingers in the mouth and has a good feel and knows what to look for. Um, I think it's really, it's always worth just getting that checked out, I think. Definitely, because, and even those that are, you know, quite glaringly obviously obvious at the tip of the tongue, um, they they still get missed because sometimes those mm-hmm. babies don't lift their tongue. So if you're just looking and the baby's tongue is down, then you're not going to see anything. Mm-hmm. Um and also, it's you know, I've seen anterior, so anterior tongue tie is just the position that it is underneath the tongue. So it means to the front of the tongue when a posterior one means it's further to the back of the underside of the tongue. Um, and a posterior tongue tie is another thing that I hear is, well, it's posterior. It, it's quite mild. Um, we, we can't actually say that because it could be a mild, it could be, sorry, a posterior tongue tie, which is short in its length, inelastic and has limited mobility. It could be an anterior one at the front, which is really long in its length, really stretchy. They'll have more movement than that short, thick tie at the back. So we have to to go and assess what that tongue is able to do. How can it function? Um, it can, can the tongue elevate, move side to side, can it extend? Um, what's the uh, peristalsis, that wave-like action of the tongue doing? Um, and so even if on an external latch, it appears the baby's wide and open if you've got to listen to the symptoms that are showing up. So if that parent is feeling pain, clamping, biting, chewing, but internally something else is going on mm-hmm. regardless of what it looks like externally. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really helpful. So what would the, the common kind of symptoms look like of a, of a, of a tongue tie that's, that's impacting feeding? Um, should we start with the symptoms for the for the baby and then we can yeah so for the baby it will vary and sometimes there'll be no symptoms at all and it might show up just in the parent um but if if there are symptoms for the baby it might show up as um difficulties latching so just not able to get on at all going on uh, going to latch and getting really frustrated the arms are coming up they're kicking um fisting at the at the breast um There may be clicking sounds because the tongue isn't keeping suction to the breast. Mm -hmm. Um, Coughing, spluttering, unable to maintain, manage the flow of milk, particularly the fast flow from the letdown. Mm -hmm. Uh, Reflux symptoms, swallowing air, um, what else? Um, Kind of quite overwhelmed, particularly again with that kind of fast flow milk that they might pull off. They may slip mm. on and off the breast constantly. They may take a really long time to feed or as soon as they go on, they fall asleep and close their eyes. They're kind of relying on the letdown. So if the milk isn't flowing um, for them, because that's what makes it easier. Uh, and if they have to use their tongue to actively remove the milk, uh, they can get quite tired quite quickly. And mm. so they fall asleep to conserve their energy. 
they may be losing weight, plateauing their weight. If they've lost that kind of weight very early on, so like 10% or more, for me, that's a red flag. What else is going, what else is going on? What, you know, is it harder for them to, particularly the colostrum, which is thicker, they need to get their tongue again in, in suction to actively transfer the colostrum. Um, so I'd be wanting to look at what's going on there. Is it just positioning attachment or is there a tongue function issue? Um, and and what about hiccup, hiccups? Can that be a sign of, of a tongue tie or hiccups quite normal for a baby? Um, so hiccups can be quite normal. And typically if you ask the parent or the mother, they'll say their baby had hiccups in the womb. Mm-hmm. And that for me is a sign when their stomach expands and is sends the diaphragm into spasm. It can be there's a bit of com- um, compression in the diaphragm from birth or being in utero. And so that's not always a sign, but hiccups, which is quite different, oh. is when that might be from the result of gulping air. And so the hiccups is just where they're just kind of, you know, hiccuping away. They're not so bothered about it. Um, they can typically sleep through it if they're, they're very small or it passes and then they're absolutely fine. The hiccups is when it's quite forceful and it's usually see it around just kind of the throat area and it's 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 quite a forceful hiccup um almost a bit of a <laughs> but it's um it's it's quite hard to describe but it, it might cause pain um and so they might hiccup and then cry out because it's painful or get really squirmy and upset or fidgety with it um and that could be a, a result of kind of excess air swallowing got it and so let's talk about um what the what tongue tie symptoms might look like for um for, for the mum what might be going on for her so for the mum or for the parent they might be feeling pain that's quite a common um symptom so they're mm-hmm. feeling pain with latching they might describe it as a pinching biting chewing sensation they might have elongated nipples or bruised very bruised purple nipples or pink red if it's um not the color they were when the baby first latched that could be a sign of compression to the nipple and then the nipple may look like a uh, lipstick shape or really flattened and squashed misshapen then that's that's a sign that the nipple is not in the soft palate and it's being compressed somewhere either with the back of the tongue or babies clamping and holding with their gums uh, and then the nipples then there's friction between the tongue and the, the hard roof of the mouth mm-hmm. that may then result if the constant friction continues it might result in bleeding damaged nipples which is very hard to continue feeding when mm-hmm. when they're so damaged so we really want to look at what's going on very early on to why that's happening um, it could be exhaustion from really long feeds, mastitis, recurrent mastitis, where like you've cleared it and then it comes back again. Blocked ducts or blebs on nipples. So again, the ducts are getting blocked with the milk. Um, and that dreading of the feeds, which is, is quite a classic one. You're dreading your baby waking up for their next feed because you know how challenging it might be or how painful it might be. These are signs to get some support in as soon as possible because it, it really it really doesn't 
have to be that way um, yeah. and it shouldn't be that way and I'm, I'm constantly saying you know pain is not normal if there is pain even when you start like those first few days it, it may happen just as you're kind of getting in the right position but once you're in that right position that pain should go completely there really should it can be pain-free from the start and I think there's a lot of expectation that it will be painful mm-hmm. um so if it's painful on latching then it's getting support as soon as possible to check it could just be the positioning and attachment needs to be tweaked but Mm -hmm. it could also be there's there's an additional reason as a tongue tie or tongue um or there's muscular tension from the birth or whatever else might be going on so it's getting that support early on just to check why why there's pain in the first place yeah I just want to say though I didn't have any pain with feeding my son and I don't so I think that can be um a common myth around tongue ties can't it that it It doesn't always yeah it doesn't always hurt and that was another reason I think why nobody um picked up on our tongue tie until my son was much older because even though I so I had like the lipstick shaped nipples um all I mean so many of the things you've just described the dread of feeding very long feeds um you know fussing at the breast getting unsettled reflux gassiness mm-hmm. um really really long feeds yeah falling asleep for five minutes waking feeding again falling yeah. asleep you know all of that That's... um but it never hurt so did you, ha- bit... did you have pain at the beginning and then it got better or it never hurt it never really hurt I mean once or twice when I when he latched maybe like wrongly and then I would just reposition him and it didn't hurt Interesting. but but it I, I don't know I must have like just teflon <laughs> <or something. laughs> I don't know but, some, but sometimes yeah. I see it where they so it so you described your nipples as being lipstick shaped though so yeah, although yeah. you didn't feel it as pain he was still compressing yes I see oh, that yeah. a lot yeah. and sometimes I see parents where they say well it, it used to hurt but now it doesn't but their nipples are still completely squashed and sometimes you, you get used to that pain level yeah maybe that was happening for me and I just thought I mean I just yeah. thought I just had to soldier on and suffer you know I just thought I had to be a martyr about it you know yeah. that it was that it was it hard get, people yeah it'll get better it'll, and, get better. Oh, it'll pay off but it, it just it didn't for a really long yeah. time um yeah. and because there was no pain yeah um I was just told well keep going. just keep going yeah so um, yeah. and also you know I think as well sometimes parents are told that if your baby can stick out their tongue they're not yeah. tied that is so... a really big myth because it's not true that's just yeah. one feature of the tongue function yeah. they may be able to stick their tongue out and sometimes quite far but their tongue is not able to elevate and keep suction so they might not get the milk out effectively and so then you get the, the symptoms that show up with that with um, inadequate milk transfer which can actually impact the supply which is you know over time if the, the the way the kind of breast milk increases and maintains is for the baby to act effectively transfer the milk and then your body knows to replace it but if they're unable to do that you know they could be on the breast for an hour or two hours it doesn't yeah. mean they're transferring milk well um and then your body doesn't know to produce it so it re- it down regulates the supply so what's going on yeah and a lot of parents are told aren't they to so if, if their baby's not gaining weight through breastfeeding they're then told to supplement and top up with formula but then mm-hmm. because they're topping up with formula they're not making the milk and I got yeah. into that trap of of fight of of top up feeds because he wasn't gaining yeah. and then 
I wasn't then stimulating my body to make more milk and so and he wasn't feeding efficiently either so he wasn't stimulating the milks so I was I would feed pump give formula it was like this endless cycle and um I think I th- it was exhausting um mm-hmm. f- and I completely understand why parents feel like they can't carry on that way it's not a sustainable it's not a sustainable feeding pattern no. at all no. no I also think that my hormones must have been so up and down because my milk supply was just constantly yo-yoing <laughs> you know I was constantly like it would disappear and then I'd have to do like three days of power pumping or whatever that I googled and you know tried to to do and I felt like trying to always trying to get my supply back up and then I would do the top ups and then it would go down again and then I would try and get it back up again I just think my body was going through so much um and I just wish I discovered you or people like (laughs) you sooner (laughs) but you know it's it's uh it's really it's it's really it's really widespread it's really common isn't it and and um Something that I, I read was that I suppose that if we look at breastfeeding kind of historically and there was this movement in the kind of 50s and 60s to get families onto breast uh, onto formula milk because it was yeah. seen as superior to breast milk and therefore all of the research about infant feeding was focused very much on formula milk and how much better they thought it was than human milk and so there's just this huge gap in research in general about breastfeeding and breast milk and tongue ties and babies and how they feed and then it's it's only been I suppose in the last 20 or 30 years as as there's been more of a or more of a push more to breastfeeding push. Yeah. that we've started to so some people will say that tongue ties are just a fad and it, oh they didn't exist in my day and yeah and, and maybe that's true. just because um that they're just we weren't you know there weren't as many breastfeeding mothers in the UK 30 years ago there wasn't and uh but pride but tongue tie has been around since around seventh century so it's definitely not a fad and you know the scissors I use today are scissors that have been used in the 16th 17th century um so it's not it's not a new thing it's it's we are aware of it more parents are aware you know they've heard about it they're asking their care provider to assess and to check um although it just hasn't quite filtered through as a standard thing to do um across in in, within the healthcare system so it goes back to the lack of knowledge and understanding um because we're not as a midwife I wasn't taught how you know we would didn't talk about tongue tie actually 15 years ago when I was training it was never mentioned it was never I never saw it in in practice really became aware of it around 2012 after I was working in the community more mm-hmm, and was starting to send lots more people in to have um uh, for referrals yeah so we sort of touched on this earlier but yeah it can be very possible that you give birth in in a in a hospital perhaps and the midwife comes and helps you with feeding and they say everything's looking fine but because they I mean midwives have you have a lot to learn it's a big job so you know that um there's a lot going on so I'm not saying it's it should be the midwife's responsibility but because they may not have been trained or um some people think that the tongue tie check is included in like the baby's first checks as well so I had a friend recently who said oh no like they didn't pick up on it in hospital and I so I said no you need you like you do need to go now and pursue this additional check because she was having a problem with feeding but it's very I understand why parents myself included assumed that it was checked and I think it's in Brazil now they are doing mandatory kind of 
compulsory tongue tie checks for all babies. That's but, what I've I've read recently, yeah. and actually, it's not. It's I think it was from. I could be wrong on the dates. So it's either twenty fourteen or twenty sixteen that it was mandated, um, and that's it. Part of their newborn assessment, yeah. and. I'd be interested to know what that looks like for their infant breathing rates, you know, having early assessment, treating those that need it. Um, and then they have, if it's not needed early on, they follow them up um, within the first 30 days to assess yeah. again. So I, I think it's still the early days, isn't it, to know how that's going to, I don't know, impact things. Yeah, I mean, they've had increasing breastfeeding rates up until that point so it'd be interesting to see if it had any bearing at all um but I feel like it's it's, it's it, if we even just having a standard you know practice across the NHS um would be ideal because we're in we are checking you know that screening I'm a, I'm a NIPE practitioner as well so I do that screening test I get to do it now in a private capacity so I get you know I spend 90 minutes in a consultation to do the whole baby check whereas in a hospital setting that can take 10 minutes mm. um but they are already in the in the baby's mouth they're assessing for the hard palate soft palate complete and they're also assessing you know if there's any other anomalies in the mouth well tongue tie or not necessarily tongue, tongue function i think for me it's, it's coming away really just looking at you know the, the frenulum and the tie got to look at the tongue function because i see babies who appear to have the symptoms of tongue tie but actually they're really tight and they're compressed and that could be from birth um yeah forceps instrumental birth epidural all these things change um or impact um the cranial nerves and how how they're born so this can then equally impact how how they feed and so what if that situation so if um if a parent has their is in that situation and there's not a tongue tie but there's there's uh, cranial stuff going on what what do you think they could do what would their options be um so when i'm assessing and not again mm-hmm. it's not something that um is is done commonly by any healthcare professionals but when i'm assessing so i've i've seen parents who i see they've come to me because they think there's a tongue tie they've been told there might be one um and I realised, well, actually, their tongue function is is mostly good. So I use an assessment tool to see what their tongue function is like. Um, and if it's a borderline score, um, for me, that tells me there's more muscular restriction. So I work on there in that moment doing some oral um, kind of massage to release the tension. Mm-hmm. And I can be in the appointment again for 90 minutes or so. And that tongue is completely different by the time I've left in the majority of cases. If that's not happening, what can help is something like um, bodywork, cranial osteopathy, cranial sacral therapy, um, myofunctional therapy. These are um, little, uh, additional, uh, I was going to say alternative, but it's, it's additional therapies that can help to work on the cranial nerves and the muscles around the tongue because it's not, the tongue is a big organ. Mm. There are 30 plus muscles that surround the tongue 22 cranial nerves if i got that right and it, it it's just there's so much more than what we what we're just seeing in the mouth yeah 
So often people, so let's talk about tongue tie treatment then, because um, obviously a lot of emphasis is on the frenulotomy, which is when we snip, <laughs> release, you know, that uh, the frenulum below the tongue to kind of in- increase um, movement. Um, but uh, yeah, let's talk a bit about that. What, 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 what is it, what happens in the frenulotomy and, and how does it help? first of all so it's a very quick procedure it takes just a few moments to do so within kind of the time I so I do them at home it's a it's a safe procedure that can be done at home um as well as in a clinic setting or hospital but it's not kind of a typical operation that we would imagine (laughs) one to be um and and so it takes from the time I swaddle baby to the time it's done and they're kind of handed back to their parent, it's about a minute, minute and a half. Yeah. So it's very quick and I use a pair of scissors and I release the frenulum from where it inserts to the base of the tongue and then the baby feeds straight after. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it's um, it's simple, but with any procedure, there it, there are risks, which, you know, it's, we need to know about um and the risks typically a risk of bleeding which it it will bleed but it's an area that has a very poor blood supply so it's usually just a few drops of blood mm-hmm. um and then the feeding afterwards is what helps to stop it yeah, um, have... go on. and so straight away so i have to say um when we had my son's um snipped at about 10 weeks uh I the feed straight away afterwards I could not believe the difference (laughs) like um, I was very lucky because I know that not everybody has this experience but I know that but for me it was like I this light bulb moment I was like oh this is why people breastfeed this is fine I can do this and it was such a relief but that doesn't always happen does it so sometimes yeah, let's talk about what happens immediately after the frenulotomy then. So what what might that look like for a family after they've gone through the, the quick snip? So it, it could be immediate, like you feel, felt. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's because they've got that, ini- they've got that initial release and their tongue is free to do what it needs to do. Um, but often, you know, feeding itself has been quite complex. And so if we're dealing with sore nipples or... Um, there's weight loss issues. You know, you've got the other factors around it that you've got to try and kind of it, uh, kind of change and improve. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes this the, the latch alone doesn't always improve straight away because the baby's got to get used to using their tongue in a new way. Yeah. And it it can take it can take sometimes a week or two for that kind of gradual progression to begin. Yeah, so with us, it was it was sure. an immediate difference, but then over a few days, it got hard again, and I was like, "Oh no, it's resealed really quick." But it, I got uh, someone to come around and have a look, and it hadn't. It's just that he needed to now learn to use that tongue and the mouth mm. and feed in this new way. And he was ten weeks old, so it took quite a lot of work actually to 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 kind of unlearn how he'd had been feeding, and we did lots of. Um, tongue exercises and mouth exercises and the fe- uh, feeding cons- like a breastfeeding consultant taught me lots of things I could do with my finger and his mouth mm, and that's a really exactly. important part of 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 it isn't it it's not just come in snip and then 
off you go. Off you go. It's definitely <laughs> not. It's, it's, it's Which... definitely not. And sometimes that's how it, it, it comes across, like depending on, you know, what practitioner it is literally a sniff and yeah. go. And unfortunately, you know, some parents find that they don't really improve or it doesn't, it wasn't effective um, yeah. because they haven't had the re-education um, of their baby's tongue. They haven't been taught any aftercare to do. Um, and I just want to say there's a, you know, there's a difference between kind of, uh, kind of exercising the tongue and releasing kind of tension. It's a bit like kind of physio, you know, if you've had an injury somewhere in the body and you've, or you've hurt your arm or your arm's been in a cast for so you've got to actually get, get used to using it in the new way once it's, it's, it's healed. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'd have maybe physio. This is no different to any other muscle in the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but there, there is a practice also of disrupting the wound and breaking the wound, um, which from some practice, practitioners recommend. And so this is where kind of your, um, your, so you, you've got the, the wound that is healing and you're opening up that wound regularly to try and prevent it from reforming. Um, and again, there's no research on this to know if this is effective. But what, we, what I do know from seeing parents that have to done it, it's, it's actually quite traumatizing because it, yeah. you're, you're causing pain again and you're bre- opening up a wound and again there's no other part of our body that we'd keep opening a wound to try and help it heal it kind of goes yes. against wound healing I have to say I, um, the the frenulotomy itself I was fine it was very quick and uh, my baby actually was fine you know within minutes and feeding happily and I was like oh okay <laughs> I don't know why I was so scared um, but I was advised to, to massage massage sounds like such a nice mm-hmm. word um, and um, every few hours I think for the first 48 hours or for, mm-hmm. I can't remember now and um, a few months later the the tongue tie had rehealed and um, a second frenulotomy was an option, but I actually found it so traumatic. Yeah, going through the, those massages that I couldn't, I just couldn't you do couldn't it. Bring again. yourself to do it. I, yeah, yeah. Um, and that was a really, really hard, like, decision to come to. Yeah, because um, I, I, I don't advocate for that. It, I've seen it, and I've seen oral aversion as a result of it because the babies right. anticipate you coming like to their mouth, and it. Yes. It, it doesn't need to. It doesn't need to be that way. It, that's not with. Oh, it, yeah. it, it, it makes me feel funny it's like because it's just I, I it's it, it is traumatic for everyone involved yeah and I felt really annoyed because I'd done it all like as exactly as I'd been told um mm-hmm. but it still rehealed so yeah <laughs> I was like well why would I do that again if it was just gonna reheal I don't know yeah, yeah. that's re- it's a reassuring to know that uh, yeah it's just that we don't know yet do we if, if that is necessary or not but that um there but there are different there are different people doing different things and so I'd be saying on that point is to research who you're getting mm. to do your you know to see you because there are there's you know there's private practitioners out there and there are the NHS practitioners it's in the NHS you're one, with anyone really you know what's their background because there they could be midwives they could be health visitors they could be um osteopaths there's some osteopaths who do it privately there are also um ent surgeons and um you want to see what you know what their background is will you get support with infant feeding because i feel like the two come together you can't do really one without the other um because that's why you're generally going to them um because you want to see what the difference is and what you need to do differently with your latch or or even bottle feeding afterwards 
The Sleep Like a Baby podcast is supported by The Octopus Club, the online marketplace where you can buy, sell and give away baby and kid stuff without any hassle. If your home is piling up with toys, clothes and bits of kit that your little one no longer uses, The Octopus Club offers an easy, environmentally friendly way of selling or donating things to other families. And if you're on the hunt for high quality secondhand goods, this is the place for you. Honestly, the stuff on there is gorgeous. Check them out on Instagram or go straight to their website, theoctopusclub.com, to sign up today. So it's, you know, I think it's just really important finding that right provider for you. And so by recommendation, all the clients I see are all word of mouth. Like I've never needed to advertise myself. It's word of mouth recommendation or practitioners referring to me. And I like to feel that, you know, I, I give that whole holistic approach to 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 the frenulotomy but the the feeding aspect so it has to come into it uh, mm-hmm. and then you've got the body work mm-hmm. to help reintegrate everything and um, so I was talking about before you know how important the tongue function is and I, I just wanted to read this out because uh, as a newborn they use six out of twelve cranial nerves there's 22 bones connecting and 34 sutures and 60 voluntary and involuntary muscles to suck swallow and breathe in a coordinated way and I think you know we see our babies just on you know sucking or, or or not if they if they're having difficulties but it's there's so much more that goes into it than what we're seeing that's amazing. And so um, you've, you've touched on this a little bit already, but um, obviously, a, a, so most of the support in the UK for tongue ties is related to breastfeeding. But can bottle fed babies also be impacted by a tongue tie? They can. And again, it's the same symptoms that might show up as kind of dribbling out the sides. They can't keep the seal with their tongue, um, coughing, spluttering, gagging overwhelmed with the flow of milk and grunting because they may be very windy Mm -hmm. the excess air swallowing reflux symptoms show up a lot and i think if parents are um going down the reflux route the cow's milk protein allergy route i always say let's go back to how they're drinking Mm -hmm. so with a bottle it may get you know it's easy to get some milk into them you know versus when kind of breastfeeding because you can you know you're managing that in a different way um so you can get volume and they can gain weight but if they're showing up with symptoms of reflux or they're really got digestive you know discomfort i want to look at how they're actually taking that milk in the first place and and what their tongue is doing because if Mm -hmm. they're getting milk quite quickly and the traditional what we um have been told typically fill the teat with milk so they don't take in air and if you're tipping the bottle up that high so that kind of um is it 90 degree angle it would be um you know then the baby's tongue-tied or their tongue function is is um is impaired in some way then that baby's not going to be able to control the flow and they will gulp air and they will then be uncomfortable afterwards and they may get reflux symptoms. But it's not necessarily true reflux. 
so we need to see how they're how they're drinking and I always go back to the paste way of bottle feeding yes. that makes such a huge difference even that, sometimes if the tongue tie remains I've seen they can manage it much better and the symptoms go away it was a game changer for for us so yeah so we I continue I I was triple feeding which means I was breastfeeding expressing and formula feeding <laughs> all at once and uh yeah and the paste feeding was such a uh, such a help um and I find I think uh, what I've seen with clients as well as a really common experience is and particularly during the last year and a half because of the because of lockdown and the lack of support so what can so often happen is that you um you have your baby you have trouble with feeding it's painful or they're just not gaining weight or whatever's happening yeah you start to top up with formula you get into the kind of the top up trap and you're just not getting the support so you decide or that maybe you're told that they have a tongue tie and maybe you have a snip and it doesn't necessarily help either and so you start to think that well the tongue is the problem or your boobs are the problem and therefore you're just going you're going to move on to formula which I completely understand Mm -hmm. why you think that but then there's no support then for formula fed babies that are tongue tied nice. and um you're then yeah you basically you blame you blame the breastfeeding and it wasn't necessarily a breastfeeding it was the tongue that needed the support exactly. and if you're told that your child has reflux because of a tongue tie it can be a natural assumption therefore that a bottle will make the reflux go away but in my own personal experience that was actually the opposite was true exactly. until we started kind of paste feeding playing around ex- experimenting with different bottles um and yet yeah, lots of parents think that they their child is allergic to cow's milk or there's yeah. something in their diet and all these things as you say but actually the flow of the milk and how much air they're taking in and makes, all of that makes a huge huge difference makes a big difference having air in the bottle isn't what mm. causes the air swallowing it's yeah. the way that they are drinking and i think that is it's, it, it's a game changer when you get it right Yes. So do you have like any videos or anything on paste feeding or something I could link to in the show notes? Um, <laughs> it's hard I, to explain over a podcast. It is. It really is. I will. Um, I can link to I, something I, in the show notes. Yeah, I've got I've got a video. There's a video on my Instagram page of just showing how upright the baby is and how to start the feed. Um, and I will post I will post another. I have got a, a very good video of paste feeding I thought um, you might. <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know I see it and, and I think also you know with it you know going back to kind of bottle feeding babies they often get dismissed uh you know you know they'll grow out of it um mm. or that the concerns of the parent is dismissed um mm. and even in hospital um for a hospital referral they if you're bottle feeding they might not um see you because mm-hmm. you have to be breastfeeding yeah. Um, and it's really hard because it's again, it's 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 not it, it's psychologically it's not sustainable. Physically, psychologically, it's not sustainable. Mm. And just as a parent, seeing your baby struggling feed after feed, it's heartbreaking. It's just you know something's not right. And yeah. I always go back to trusting your intuition, that inner voice. Like if it's something is not feeling right, then it probably isn't. And you know, keep researching, keep finding that practitioner who you who will hopefully help you resolve the issues and that's the other thing you know having I've seen somebody uh recently and they had all the support you know they saw 
they've had nine lactation consultant visits they've seen mm. pediatricians they've seen like everyone that they could possibly see and you know weeks down the line 12 weeks down the line they've still been having challenges with breastfeeding and they've gone down the reflux route they've gone down the protein the milk protein allergy and and you know I go in and it's it's the tongue the tongue mm-hmm. is they had two tongue tie divisions as well mm-hmm. and it, but again it, it, it it's still the tongue and until we correct that you know it, it's it's that that's what's needed and you have to I'm always looking at what the underlying issue is mm-hmm. and even without correcting in this particular case without correcting the tongue tie we, we she's kind of combination feeding but they've managed to taste the feeds and the, all the reflux symptoms went overnight yeah yeah it's amazing um and I I, I don't know why this isn't just yeah <laughs> I don't know why we oh, don't know this why do I why do so many of us have to learn the really hard way it's, it's frustrating. I know but I, think... I know it's lack of knowledge it's lack of education and I think for me that's you know I, I have started teaching on this because I feel so I feel like I mean just for me and my own personal stuff, I, I should have known this. Like, mm. you know, you said, you know, midwives can't learn it all, but kind of caring for the infant, we, feeding is, is fundamental to them. Yeah. Like that's part of our role. It's our primary role is what I was going to say for the, for the, for the infant. And yeah. so having sound knowledge on not just getting them on, but how they're getting on. So it's the how, like it's the how to, how are they doing it? How are they swallowing? How are they sucking? How are they transferring milk? When we know these things, then we can understand uh, the issues that are coming up. Yeah, and how 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 is the parent feeling? I think yes. you know breastfeeding tra- trauma is not is wide is not is not real is it's real and um, it can be you know especially if you've not had maybe you've not had the birth that you had hoped for maybe you have complicated feelings about birth or pregnancy and then you've had a complicated relationship with feeding. It yes. can really, really start to undermine. Well, this was my experience. I really, I, I, I did, I, I had that instinct. I heard my that inner voice that you talk about, yeah. but I didn't have the confidence to listen to it because lots yes. of people kept telling me it's fine, it's fine, you're exactly. doing fine. It's eroded and I, yeah. by the uh, misinformation and the conflicting information mm-hmm. from practitioners. Yeah, and uh, and it's hard sometimes to admit that it's not. I I just wanted to do well at at it you know what I mean like I just wanted something to be a success and so mm. uh, it can feel like such a failure if you're not if if you're not breastfeeding how you wanted to yeah um, there's a deep and, desire to and you know you you, you know you say it to yourself okay that's it I'm I'm not doing this anymore but you find yourself that there's this yearning to keep doing it and keep going yes. and it, it, it when it doesn't go the way uh, you intended it, it's it's finding I you know finding peace with it where it is and mm. um, to be able to move forward um, yes. and when you can't you know, that's where, that's where the it, you're just kind of triggering that trauma yes. the time and it, it but it's hard it's such a hard uh, it's kind of pulled in these emotional different emotional directions with it yeah. um, for me it took me a long time you know I still kind of find it crazy that I'm able to talk about this stuff without sobbing through the interview to be honest because I, I couldn't talk about feeding without crying um yeah. and and I, I dreaded feeding in public I 
you know, it was all of these things. I just, or if I saw someone else feeding really well, even if I was no longer, even after I was I'd stopped breastfeeding, I, I would feel like a kind of an, yeah, I'd have an emotional response to that. And it brought up all these feelings. And I found that just talking about it and finding other people, because it's a really common, sadly, it shouldn't be so common, but it is more common than I'd realised. And I've met so many other women who've had such similar experiences to me. So just talking about it with people who understand um, makes me realise it wasn't a failure. <laughs> you know, it wasn't. Yes. Um, it, it really, it it wasn't. really isn't. No. It wasn't and you. No. If you move on to formula at two days or two years or, or you know not two years but you know if you, if you move on to formula after two days two weeks two months or you never do whatever happens like it's okay you yeah. haven't failed um but you, you do need support with those emotions that that's that that's bringing up for you exactly because it's it, they are real and they're valid and I say the opposite way I said even if you breastfed for one day one week one year yeah. like at any point that you're choosing to transition or to yes. you know move forward it, it takes it 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 still takes that pull on you. If, uh, my, you know, I had a, I had two very different experiences with my breastfeeding. You know, my mm-hmm. first was eighteen months when we stopped, but it wasn't that we stopped because I wanted to or she wanted to, but it was the pressure around me and, um, from from kind of family yeah. who, yeah. you know, kept putting in their two pens. Like you're still doing that, and it was such a negative, um, oh, I'm sorry, approach yeah. to it. And and yeah. so, uh, you know, and I think you know I definitely kind of felt like I was forced to stop by um some not not well-meaning people around me and um and so my second time I was determined I was like I don't care what anybody says I'm not stopping until she's ready and that took four years <laughs> um, but it took me two but, but I was ready around probably two and a half years but I couldn't stop at that point because it was so much more than it was so much more for her and it you know we we could we could talk about it at this point we were having conversations and okay and she's like when it's my third birthday I'm gonna stop (laughs) (laughs) and and so when she was three we said I said right you're three now (laughs) no and it was like she needed she we couldn't it took literally two years of talking about it and trying to you know gently kind of weaned yeah. out and it's a whole different relationship but we kept going and she would have stopped she was ready to still keep going at four but I I was I was <laughs> yeah. done um but it's knowing when you're done and it's knowing that but it still was quite a pull to try and do that and I you know we stopped for a month at one point and then wow. she came back I woke up in the night and she was on me and I was like oh, <laughs> oh no. and I was too to- too exhausted yeah. to fight it so we just kind of got back onto it again so but it's you know at any age at any age four days four weeks four four years it it it, yeah. it takes a lot to try and stop and to try and make peace with the transition it does yeah and I'm very very lucky because for, for me when I was going through all my challenges with, with feeding I just kept saying to myself I just don't want to stop because I had to like I wanted to stop when I when it was right for me I didn't want to stop because someone told me I couldn't do it if that made sense exactly so um I, I thought you know it wasn't as long as I thought it would be but when we did stop it was completely my choice it felt like the right time yes I made my peace with it yeah I, I was peaceful with that decision and I 
I, I let it I, yeah I, I, I moved on I moved on and it was good and yeah. that was, um, so that's why I think feeding support you know there's a lot of pressure on parents to breastfeed and we're told how great it is and then there isn't enough support afterwards exactly the the, the and, antenatal pressure or or yeah. support you know it's it's the encouragement the support the benefits that it's really high and if you you know if you you talk about it that there's not I don't know in terms of you know how much um antenatal support in terms of the actual kind of doing it or preparing for it is there and parents often feel like they were not prepared antenatally for mm-hmm. what is happening um but yeah that's that goes downhill after birth yeah like the support is not there in terms of sustainable support yeah and and there's a lot of um people can feel very judged and you know and for me I just think I don't care how anyone feeds their baby as long as they're happy with how they're feeding so whatever for whatever method that is it's got to work for your family hasn't it and you've got to feel good about it and it should be an empowering experience like feeding should make you feel fantastic however exactly. it happens um, exactly. it should be a positive experience rather than a, a, something that's tied to failure or and it's um, completely judgment. your choice you know parents ask yeah. me all the time I said someone asked me on the call the other day you know okay so is it okay for me to express and give, give my milk overnight and I, and I, you know, I can't say either way. It, like, is yeah. it you get to, you get to choose yeah. what that looks like, and it's taking yeah. that power back and making the choices that are right for you and your family. Yeah, that's great advice. Right, <laughs> I should let you get on, but um, I think I feel like we've covered lots of stuff that yeah that I wanted to, but um, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add in. Yeah, no, I think that's that.